This is the Rookie Researcher Podcast with me, Redmond Scales. Transitional justice can be traced back to the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials. Its goal is to address legacy issues of conflict or of oppressive regimes. A wide range of mechanisms have helped us understand the process of transitional justice. However, is there another paradigm at play? On this week's episode, I chat to Emma Murphy, a PhD candidate in UCD, where she researches transitional justice. Hi Emma, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good. Um, I think it's safe to say that it has been quite a hectic week. Um, so the reason why we didn't have a, a podcast last week was because of the, um, or this week even, was um, because of the US election. We were glued to that all week. I think we were, <laughs> we had a, a Zoom meeting with, um, or like kind of an election party with some of the, the politics group in, in UCD. And on Tuesday night, I think we were fairly depressed going to bed with the, the state of affairs. But then obviously it picked up and now we have a new president-elect. Um, yeah, it's and, been yeah. quite, quite an emotional roller coaster, I will say. Very, um, and it doesn't look like that roller coaster is going to stop anytime soon because of Donald Trump refusing to concede. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting what seventy plus days. Definitely. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the election. Um, I'm sure we could talk for hours about the election, and we already have. We're here to talk today about your research. Um, and it's basically transition on transitional justice and um, kind of mainstream and agonistic justice is, is what you argue for. But before we get into that, we know each other. We were, we're both in the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. But for anyone that doesn't know you, do you just want to give a, a quick introduction to yourself? Sure. So I'm Emma Murphy. I'm a PhD candidate uh, now in my third year at UCD, um, originally from the US, and I did my undergrad at Mount Holyoke College, which is a small liberal arts school in Massachusetts, uh, and then my MPhil at Pembroke College at Cambridge. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm looking at transitional justice, including um, potential alternatives to dominant practices. We're going to go straight in, and we're basically just going to ask, what is transitional justice? Yeah, so I think a lot of people may not know the term, but you would probably be familiar um, with some of the mechanisms. So when we're talking about transitional justice, it's um, somewhat of a newer field. We usually trace it back to the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials following the Second mm-hmm. World War, um, where we had these war criminals on trial for crimes against humanity um, and the like. But essentially, transitional justice refers now to any set of mechanisms designed to address a legacy of conflict or Um, an oppressive regime. Um, Usually in the past, it's been to address the history of an illiberal regime. Um, Mm -hmm. But now it refers to quite a wide range of mechanisms. So again, as I mentioned, trials might be one that we're all familiar with or things like tribunals. Um, Mm -hmm. But then there are quite a full range going from things like truth commissions. Um, So this would be um, a commission set up where participants in the war, either who were victims or perpetrators, um, or both, because that line is often quite blurred, um, Mm. might take part in the sharing of their experiences in order to, um, oftentimes to get a definitive record of what the truth of um, the conflict was. Other times it's more about um, simply sharing experiences. Um, There's also things like amnesties, um, which would essentially be um, 
decisions not to prosecute certain crimes following conflict or regime change. Um, mm -hmm. Lustration or vetting, which is maybe one of the lesser known ones, but we can think of um, some maybe post-communist regimes. Um, and this would really refer to stopping people who had been part of an oppressive regime from serving in different positions um, in a new government. Um, then there are things like reparations, um, which can be monetary restitution or other types of compensation for victims of conflict. Um, things like commemorations and memorials, um, which I think we all can think of examples of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And then reconciliation measures, which work to address this legacy of division or um, conflict again. And probably, again, even if you aren't familiar with all of these mechanisms, mechanisms you might know one such as truth commissions. Um, the most famous example of that might be the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, which is also really well known because it was the first truth commission to have this system where in exchange for truth, um, perpetrators were guaranteed amnesty as long as they had told the full truth about the extent of the atrocities they had committed um, in the wake of apartheid. Um, mm -hmm. But on the whole, transitional justice is a really new and somewhat interdisciplinary field. Um, it has its origins in the legal field, but quite involved with politics and anthropology. Um, definitely elements of gender studies come in, things like critical race theory might be relevant. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really quite interdisciplinary in nature. Yeah, I think this is a really important point, uh, the interdisciplinary nature of transitional justice itself. And this is, is quite a broad topic itself. And I'm just wondering, are there any, are there certain ways of, of looking at transitional justice, justice as a process itself? Absolutely. So because there are so many goals within transitional justice, there's dealing mm. with victims, there's dealing with perpetrators, there's thinking about the divisions between these groups, so whether those are as clear cut as we might think, there's a lot of different goals. So that comes along with a lot of different approaches to mm -hmm. transitional justice more broadly. Um, we can think of a couple really prominent ones might be um, forward looking versus backward looking. So if we're mm -hmm. talking about backward looking, um, that maybe makes it sound negative in a way, but it's really more about dealing with legacy issues. So looking at mm -hmm. what happened during the conflict, how do we address what happened during the conflict? Um, how do we come to terms with an oppressive regime? Um, things that really have to do with the period of history that presumably this state is now coming out of. Um, versus forward-looking would be things that are thinking more about how we can establish um, new institutions typically for the future that might prevent against this uh, conflict or oppressive regime um, in the future. So that again would have to do a lot more with creating institutions that might, um, for example, strengthen democracy or look at how we can handle division, things like that. Um, and then we also have different debates. So things like, um, should we take a retributive or a restorative approach? Um, retributive to really simplify, it might be thinking more about the punishment side. So mm -hmm. um, how do we deal with those people who have committed atrocities? Um, what do we do with them? What type of 
recourse or punishment do we have for those groups? Then we also might think about restorative practices, which um, are going to be much more focused on the victim side of the conflict or regime. So how do we um, compensate or help victims move on from this legacy of conflict? Um, what can we do to restore what's been taken from people during this period? Um, and then a final really prominent debate that we hear a lot about, especially now, would be things like top-down versus bottom-up approaches. Um, so if we're talking about top-down, you can think of really um, prominent conflicts that might have international actors involved and really big um, structural institutions implemented there um, that sort of come from outside typically and are then imposed on um, a conflict or a situation. Um, and again, that maybe makes it sound like it has negative connotations, but a lot of times these uh, strategies have been really effective. But this would again be in contrast to bottom-up approaches, which are focused on um, sort of talking to the local peoples and figuring out what they want to do to address this legacy of conflict or regime change. So I suppose when one thinks about transitional justice, um, and especially the examples you just gave of post-apartheid in South Africa or the Nuremberg um, trials or Tokyo trials, many people would think that, especially you know, us Westerners, in a sense, would think that transitional justice is something that's quite far away, um, that's kind of uh, outside of our reach, um, that we don't or we can't necessarily, ex or we haven't experienced it, in a sense. But it's actually a lot more closer to home than we think. Yeah, I think there is a tendency to think of particularly conflict as something that just doesn't happen in the West, um, mm -hmm. which, as we can demonstrably see throughout history, is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are a lot of examples very close to home. If I'm looking at my own context um, and thinking about um, following World War II, for example, reparations for the Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, um, mm -hmm. that's certainly an example of transitional justice. Um, as I discussed, reparations are often a really core part of any transitional justice strategy. Um, and I think we're hearing talk, too, about potentially using transitional justice mechanisms to address um, the history of violence against Black Americans. Um, so mm -hmm. there have been proposals for truth commissions or for reparations. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates has made a really interesting case for reparations um, for Black Americans. Um, but moving outside of the U.S. context, uh, there's also been a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. Um, and then there's also the example of Northern Ireland, which is something I've looked at quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so in looking at Northern Ireland, probably most people might be familiar with the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement. Um, this was signed in 1998. Um, and this agreement, while it was uh, incredible and really quite a feat to have achieved in a lot of ways is very mm -hmm. forward-looking in nature. So it sets out uh, a lot of institutions and makes a lot of provisions for Northern Irish society moving forward. But I think one of the critiques that's been leveled against it is that it really doesn't do a lot to address the legacy of conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, so since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, we've actually had quite a few additional peace agreements 
in Northern Ireland. Um, one that I might focus on would be the Stormont House Agreement, which was signed in 2014. Um, so the Stormont House Agreement actually includes a lot of these provisions that are more legacy focused or backward looking, mm -hmm. we might say. Um, it made provisions for an oral history archive in which people's stories could be collected and preserved, um, a historical investigations unit to look at, again, um, paramilitary deaths or um, deaths due to government forces, um, an independent commission on information retrieval, and then an implement implementation and reconciliation group. Um, which is meant to oversee all of these mechanisms and draw out themes coming from these different mechanisms. So they're all independent. They all worked together in some ways, um, mm. but they also offered different paths for victims and survivors. So if you just wanted to share your story, you would have the oral history archive. If you wanted to find out more about um, the death of relative, you could go to um, the Independent Commission on Information Retrieval or the Historical Investigations Unit. Um, mm. There are really quite a lot of different avenues that you could pursue. Uh, and that was, again, signed back in 2014, but hadn't really been implemented. And then in January of this year, so January 2020, um, there's a new agreement, the New Decade New Approach Agreement, um, stating that these institutions should be implemented within 100 days. Um, mm -hmm. So theoretically, we we're going to finally have these mechanisms that would address the past and really deal with the legacy in Northern Ireland. Um, but then on March 18th, there was a statement by Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, um, which really cast a lot of doubt on whether or not these institutions will be implemented. Um, this statement talks about sort of reconceptualizing the whole Storm and House Agreement and replacing all of these institutions with a single institution sort of to run everything. Um, mm -hmm. And the statement focused on this need to shift the focus of our approach to the past. Um, so there's not been a lot of detail on that. We don't really know what that's going to look like. Um, and I think COVID has delayed any plans for reconceptualizing those institutions quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I've heard from talking to a lot of people working in Northern Ireland is that they feel that this is just another delay for victims and survivors. And for a lot of them, mm -hmm. um, time is really running out for them to be able to share their stories or to um, pursue the truth about what happened to relatives, um, things like this. So. Northern Ireland, again, a case a lot closer to home for a lot of people mm -hmm. um, and one where we see both some successful elements of transitional justice and also a lot of the difficulties associated with transitional justice. If one was to sum up transitional justice, its main aim is to basically try to come to a consensus, to heal wounds and to help strengthen institutions. This isn't always the case, as we've seen with history itself. Um, and this is where your research comes in. And you argue an alternative paradigm here, away from the mainstream um, mechanisms of transitional justice, where there's more of a conflictual relationship um, playing out here. And you call it agonistic transitional justice. So, Emma, what is agonistic transitional justice? 
Yeah, so agonistic transitional justice is drawn from broadly a theory of um, agonism, which was popularized by probably most well-known um, in the works of Chantal Mouffe, but then also William Connolly has done work on this. Um, and agonism and its approach to democracy more broadly really focuses on embracing contestation and dissent um, mm. rather than working to achieve consensus. So if we look at liberal approaches to both democracy and peace building, it's oftentimes about focusing on these shared things that we all have in common um, and trying to move beyond division. Um, mm. In the context of a post-conflict society, this may not always be um, the most, I guess, realizable goal. Um, so I'm looking at this potential alternative, um, which draws on both this work on agonistic democracy, um, but then also other scholars have worked on agonistic reconciliation. Um, so Andrew Schopp famously conceptualized agonistic reconciliation as a radical break with the social order that underpinned the violence of the past. Um, so here we see a different approach rather than trying to get back to normal and go back to how things were before the conflict. We're really mm -hmm. focused um, if we're adopting an agonistic approach on trying to change the underlying structures that contributed to the conflict in the first place. Um, and that's not by eliminating conflict on the whole, but rather mm -hmm. it's by transforming the outlets for division from violent ones into um, these democratic ones where we can have these arenas where we express dissent and division um, without needing to then move beyond those divisions or without needing to go back into violence as the only outlet for expressing those. So Emma, you've explained to us the process of agonistic transitional justice, but now you're in the third year of your PhD and I'm just wondering how you have operationalized this. So how have you identified or have been able to identify elements of agonistic transitional justice in the cases you've studied? Um, so in looking at this um, approach, um, when I'm approaching this, it's not something that's really been studied so much in empirical studies. Um, so mm -hmm. as I mentioned, there's quite a lot of theoretical literature on it. And maybe um, you can tell from some of the ways that it's worded that it's seemingly somewhat complex and theoretical. But actually, I think mm -hmm. there is a lot of this agonistic transitional justice out there. Um, and we just don't really know that much about it because it hasn't been studied yet. Um, so in looking at it in this empirical context, so in the context of actual cases, actual transitional justice that we find in the world today, I started by thinking about what indicators we might use um, mm -hmm. to see this in practice. So when I'm talking about indicators, that's really the signs that this is going to be present. Um, and I came up with five and they're, mm -hmm. They go from, let's say, the easiest to the hardest, or rather, um, the least to the most stringent. Um, mm -hmm. So the first one would be what I call no consensus. So it's the absence of any language related to consensus. So I'm looking at these in the context of peace agreements. And oftentimes in peace agreements, you'll have specifically the word consensus, 
um, mm -hmm. as a stated goal of a peace agreement. But also it might be things like working towards national unity or a shared understanding of something. Um, so anything that really requires unity or consensus, then I wouldn't be coding for it under this no consensus indicator. Um, no consensus really means it doesn't take that approach or at least doesn't have that language specifically um, mm -hmm. in the text of the peace agreement. My second one is multiple narratives. So again, because agonism is in opposition to this mainstream approach where we are working towards a unified narrative or as I mentioned earlier in the context of truth commissions, maybe a single definitive record of the truth. Um, mm -hmm. That would be a mainstream approach. Whereas if I'm looking for an agonistic approach, it's going to be something that allows for multiplicity. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm looking for multiple narratives, I'm looking for evidence that let's say an oral history archive, like the one in Northern Ireland, might incorporate a lot of different narratives and narratives that might actually conflict. So there's not going to be this single idea of truth and the goal of the mechanism isn't going to be to arrive at the single definitive version of the conflict. So that's what I mean by multiple narratives. And typically mm -hmm. when I'm looking for multiple narratives, it's going beyond just um, the two conflict parties. I might be looking for variation within a single conflict party or maybe more parties beyond just the two conflict parties. Um, something that really shows a commitment to multiplicity that goes beyond what we might normally expect in a peace agreement. Um, mm -hmm. The third indicator I have is intersectionality. So here I'm looking for a recognition of not just how two different identities might um, have differing opinions and how we can recognize those, but actually looking for the ways in which multiple facets of identity contribute to multiplicity. Um, so we'd be thinking about recognizing, again, going back to the case of Northern Ireland, not only Republicans and unionists, but maybe um, women Republicans from lower class backgrounds, something like this. Um, so anything that makes provisions for recognizing those narratives or promoting a recognition of the experiences associated with these intersectional identities, that's going to be coded for that. The fourth one I have is what I call the institutionalization of dissent. And this is probably the hardest one to find because when we're thinking about peace agreements, people probably aren't thinking for the most part about how they can be fostering dissent. Um, mm -hmm. So it does happen, but it's difficult to find. But here I'm looking for some type of provision talking about expressing opposition. Um, mm -hmm or encouraging different perspectives or encouraging conflicting ideas. Um, these types of provisions do actually exist. And I think they're probably the most interesting to study from this perspective of looking for agonism in practice. But again, they're mm -hmm. probably rarest within this um, peace agreement database that I was looking at. Um, and then the final indicator would be what I call creation of space for agonistic encounters. So here we're looking at basically any type of space that would allow for any of the previous indicators to occur. So it might be the creation of an institution where we have multiple narratives being voiced. It might be a memorial that incorporates dissenting 
viewpoints on a single event, um, things like this. Anything where there's a either physical or institutional space um, for potentially these agonistic encounters to occur. Um, that's what I would be looking for. So that was all these five indicators. And basically I took these indicators and along with um, my co-author on an article, um, Dr. Don Walsh, we were looking at peace agreements. So we had a database of 637 peace agreements and we looked for these indicators. Um, And based on what we found from that database, then in my own PhD work, um, I selected some cases to look at really on a deeper qualitative level to see mm-hmm. what that looks like in practice through these institutions. Um, so I'm focused on Northern Ireland, Colombia, Uganda, and Indonesia. So Emma, just kind of going back to my earlier point, when I introduced um, your your topic of agonistic transitional justice, and I said the world isn't isn't perfect to conform to the traditional paradigm of, of just transitional justice where a commission is established and a general consensus is agreed to and everyone goes home all happily ever after. It seems that both the mainstream and your paradigm of agonistic transitional justice can coexist together where a commission can start off with a general kind of goal, a general consensus, have an output of all, of, of all these different indicators that you, you describe of multiple narratives and dissent. Um, I'm just wondering, what does this look like in practice? Yeah, absolutely. That's been, I think, one of the most interesting findings from my research so far is that from this initial looking at peace agreements, um, there might be provisions for a mechanism that make it sound really mainstream. So they might talk Mm -hmm. about unity or consensus. um, And a lot of times that's also in practice what they are like. They're taking these principles and applying Mm -hmm. them and pursuing that more mainstream consensus-focused end goal. But then we also find a lot of commissions that are a mix of these two, of the mainstream and the agonistic. And then we also Mm -hmm. find a few that are almost purely agonistic in nature. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the case of Northern Ireland, an example of a really agonistic institution might be the FICT Commission. So this is the Commission on Flags, Identity, Culture, and Tradition. Um, and a lot of what they're doing, probably, if you think about it, it makes sense why it might be agonistic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about flags and identity in Northern Ireland, this is maybe one of the areas where we see the most contention and contestation. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of debate about what flags can be flown, when they can be flown, Um, how people can express their identity. Um, So it is something that seems like it would lend itself well to agonism. Um, Mm. And from speaking to members of this commission, I can confirm that it does actually turn out to be quite an agonistic institution. So in speaking to the joint chairs, I learned a lot about the ways in which disagreement can be preserved in an institution. Um, and again, I don't think this is something that's really been studied all that much. Um, a lot of times we're looking at how we can reach agreement, but we're not necessarily looking at what we do with disagreement that can't be resolved. And there are some of these disagreements that are tied to identity. And so maybe they're not going to be resolved right away, or maybe they won't ever be resolved. So the FICT tells us a lot about how we can 
deal with this dissent and institutionalize mm-hmm. it. And so for them, they had a lot of this disagreement on things related to flags, things related to culture, even within the workings of the commission themselves. So what they did is actually preserve these areas of disagreement in the final report. Both of the joint chairs told me that you would be able to tell where there were areas of disagreement. And rather than forcing that to consensus, they preserve it as it is in the publication of the final report. Um, Now, the final report hasn't been released yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like. Um, But we also see examples in terms of how the commission operated. So they, for example, in engaging with the public, aren't trying to look at only the areas where people agree. Um, They really encouraged people to share their views and they had a lot of disagreement. And I can tell that it wasn't easy to deal with, but that was something they embraced rather than trying to eliminate. Um, So that's an example of an institution that does turn out to be really agonistic in nature. Um, But we can contrast that with something like the British Irish Council in Northern Ireland, um, which was created through the Good Friday Agreement. And this is a very consensus-focused organization. So they essentially have all these member administrations throughout the UK and Ireland um, that meet regularly. And they focus only on areas of agreement between member administrations. So if there's an area where um, some of the member administrations might not agree, that's typically Mm -hmm. taken off the agenda ahead of time and not really engaged with. And this is not to say that one of these is better than the others, but it's really to point out that they serve very different purposes. Um, Mm -hmm. The British Irish Council is very focused on sort of normalcy and getting things back to normal, back to business Mm -hmm. as usual, whereas the FICT Commission is really much more focused on how do we find ways to express identities that are opposed to each other. So Emma, just going back on the example there of the, the FIC Commission. So one can argue that, you know, in certain circumstances like in Northern Ireland, that divisions are going to be there from the outset and there is possibly no potential for a common consensus among any party present. So this is what you're getting at with agonistic uh, transitional justice. So I'm just wondering why is it so important that we study this and why should we care uh, about agonistic transitional justice? Yeah, so I think the short answer is I'm not quite sure yet. So I've done Hmm. one case study so far and I'm looking to do the other three. Um, COVID has delayed that a little bit, but (laughs) really what I'm trying to first look at is what this looks like in practice and then start to think about what these differences mean. Um, What does Mm -hmm. it mean to have a more agonistic transitional justice practice? And why does that occur? Now, as you mentioned, I think if you're looking at conflict from an agonistic point of view, it would very much echo what you just said. So Mm -hmm. agonists would say that we're never going to be able to eliminate contestation. So we shouldn't really focus on trying to reach consensus. Instead, we should think about, in some ways, agonism can be a form of conflict regulation. So we're thinking about what do we do to encourage contestation and division to have democratic um, and peaceful outlets rather than Mm -hmm. devolving into violence again. And agonists would probably also say that if we try to ignore this contestation and division, 
that actually what we're going to do is just push states back into conflict. So I think from an agonistic point of view, there's the potential through these more agonistic transitional justice approaches for Mm -hmm. a piece that's more sustainable and one that's more inclusive. Part of the reason why agonists are suspicious of consensus is that they say there's really no way to form a consensus without excluding people. Mm. So by moving away from that, we can focus on incorporating everyone and allowing for a lot of dissenting voices to have space and to be voiced. Um, Mm. Now that said, it sounds great when you think about it that way, but um, even from maybe the example of the Fate Commission, I think that you can tell it's often difficult to implement in practice. Um, it's a lot slower in some senses, and it's a lot trickier to move forward when people don't agree. Um, but from an agonistic perspective, that might be the only sustainable way forward where we can actually move on as a society by mm-hmm. allowing people to continue to express their truths and to really voice their opposition to dominant practices, for example. That's all we have time for on today's episode of the Rookie Researcher podcast. Emma, I'd like to thank you for coming on and I wish you all the best in the rest of your PhD research. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of the Rookie Researcher podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you would like to come on the podcast, you can contact me at redmondscales13 at gmail.com or on Twitter at red underscore scales. Thanks for listening and stay safe.